HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, the queen of Seattle's post-grunge music and dining scene is Linda Dershang. And with the blessing and backing of Sub Pop's Jonathan Poneman, the Dershang Green Group began in 1994. First, there was Linda's Tavern on Capitol Hill. Now there are over 10 locations from the seasonal pub Smith to two locations of the all-day Cafe Oddfellows and the Ballard Neighbor burger joint, King's Hardware. But lately, she's been reviving Queen City, an iconic Belltown space, which has been a bar or restaurant for over 100 years. And, you know, it's, it's that design, decor, and determination that's really defined her dynamic aesthetic for more than two decades. So welcome, Linda. Very, very happy to have you on. And I, I literally was just in Seattle last week and walked by a multitude of your places. Um, but Let's start about how you even got to Seattle and what the atmosphere was like pre-1994. Well, I moved to Seattle in 1987, and I had had a clothing store um, in Denver, Colorado, a sort of a punk rock clothing store selling Creepers, Dr. Martens, Manic Panic, Hair Dye, <laughs> Black Jeans from Trash and Vaudeville. Can you hear that? Everyone going to their closets, pulling out all the clothes <laughs> of the late 80s right now. <laughs> And I decided that it was time to leave Denver and uh, had friends that were touring in a band and 
they told me to check out Seattle. I knew that L.A., New York, San Francisco already had plenty of stores uh, that were similar to mine. And so in uh, January of 1987, I took a little trip to Seattle, and it was, uh, it was sunny and beautiful, and people were very nice. And I found a location for the store and uh, um, an apartment, and it just happened... So it happened very quickly, and by May, I was already living there and had opened the store. Can I ask which band it was that was touring? Because I feel like music's going to be a very big part of this discussion. It was a band called The Fluid, and they ended up being on Sub Pop a few years later, maybe a year later. So can you define, aside from the style, what punk rock meant to you at that time? Mm, I think... It started hanging around the punk rock, and you know, and it was also new wave scene in Denver in the early '80s. And I was, uh, you know, taking art classes in college, and I started working at a record store called Wax Tracks um, and waiting tables. And so I think I was, I guess, it was just finding my people, um, finding, uh, you know, probably some young and a little angry <laughs> <laughs> at times friends, which. Um, but just also creative people, people that were that were uh, living a different way than uh, that I had been exposed to before, even though it was Denver, the Denver punk rock scene, you know, and started going like uh, to San Francisco to see the Cramps play because uh, uh, so there were bands that didn't actually make it to Denver. Um, once we drove, I drove with a group of friends to Chicago to see Bauhaus and turned around and drove back the next day. I, I can in my college years, I, I certainly made those drives. And th- there is something about music that is so magnetic that you're willing to take that trip. And it's crazy to think that food is in a similar vein nowadays. People mm-hmm. are willing to drive for miles, jump on planes to see that restaurants. And mm-hmm. I constantly hear uh, that chefs are the new rock stars. But you've seen these two paths, um, not necessarily parallel music prior to food. Um, when did these two things converge for you? Well, by let's let's see, um, in '92, Sub Pop had gone from a scrappy, uh, sometimes broke record label to, but you know they'd been they probably became fairly well known. What was it about ni- around 1990? But by '92, you know Nirvana had um, <coughs> had become. <coughs> Successful, very successful. Yeah, and I, aside from Nirvana, I actually—I hate to say this and admit this in front of you—wasn't a huge Nirvana fan. And what? Yeah, and I mean, I, I appreciate them, but I was a Mud Honey fan. Oh yeah. Oh my God, "Touch Me, I'm Sick" yeah. is one of my top five favorite songs. But between ever. those two and Soundgarden, mm-hmm. there was a specific type of, you know, sound coming out of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that pair with a specific type of men- cap- mentality, like punk rock did in Denver at the time? Oh, I think, yeah, definitely. And so, you know, when I moved to Seattle, I just, uh, of course, gravitated towards, you know, the same sort of social life and friends that I had in Denver, which was, you know, uh, people that were involved in music and art and, um, and people that owned small businesses, a little coffee shop, um, you know, a little record store, a skateboard shop. And then, obviously, the sub-pop, a little record label that became a big record label. 
the modern bands that are on the label now, I think, are like Sleater Kenny. Not that they're new, but Sleater Kenny, um, Fleet Foxes. I think Postal Service was on them for a while, if not still. Mm-hmm. Um, how but, has Sub Pop evolved in the same way that Seattle has? Hmm. How, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that Sub Pop is, is, has stayed for many, many, many years over... What I guess look, this summer was the 30-year anniversary. Um, a, a really well-known independent record label, and they're still really successful. Um, and I think that that's something definitely to be applauded. Well, how do you use that? That I, I don't know what the word is, but um, how do you use that arc of having existed and changed, but still represented the same kind of ethos? Um, to owning a restaurant group. Hmm. Well, it's tricky. Let's see. Well, I guess I'll tell you a little of my path. I, so I started with this little dive bar <laughs> called Linda's Tavern that uh, in February will be 25 years old. And right after that, uh, Jonathan Poneman said, gosh, this has been really great. Let's do something else. I said, wait, hold on, this has only been a few months, give me a little more time with this. But within a couple years, uh, uh, we opened another place, and and about six months later, another place. And so suddenly I had three businesses, close to 100 employees, and I felt like I was juggling all these balls in the air. Because I know it sounds a little ridiculous to think, how could she not think what it would be like to run a company that big? But I was just kind of winging it and you know one of my one of my mottos in life is why not you know let's just do this so right, right before the show we were talking about how you had never worked in there well i mean you had weighed the tables but you had never been a bartender before right um and when you open up linda's tavern you called that uh, discipline beer tending right <laughs> so what is on the job like otj learning like in this industry well, I mean, there definitely was a lot to learn. I think the biggest thing for anyone that ends up owning a business is managing people, right? How do you get people to do what they're supposed to do and want to do it and create a really good culture around that? Um, and, you know, that's, it's a, it can be a steep learning curve. How many employees do you have now? A little over 200. How many locations do you have now? Six. How hard is it to, to delegate? How hard is it not to be the one in, I mean, maybe ultimate control, but be in day-to-day control of things? I would say early on it was it was hard. I definitely wanted, I was a bit of a micromanager, and I think that's common. But the older I get, the easier I find it to, you know, let things go and let other people handle them. And I'm really blessed with uh, an amazing team of people around me. You could speak their names. Oh, <laughs> please, because, you know, it does take a village to be able to, yeah. you know, have a, a village of I, restaurants in Seattle. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I can go through the list again and say, you know, that the Smith is a seasonal pub and Odd Fellows is an all day cafe and Tallulah's uh, was a veggie Ford restaurant. But that doesn't really define the spirit of who or what those places are. It's the who in those places. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, a, a manager at Odd Fellows. Um, worked at a business I sold years ago in the late 90s, and then another business that um, that I sold a few years after, or a few years after that. 
um, and left and went and worked for a few different restaurants and then came back to work for our company about, you know, maybe nine, eight or nine years ago. And I... I just think that it's so wonderful that she was with us for a while, left, and and came back, and hopefully will be with us for for many many years. I have employees that have been with me for ten, fifteen years, um, and you know I think that being surrounded by the right people just makes all the difference in anything that we do. In reading about you um, in profiles that I had seen in The Stranger and in Seattle Magazine is I, I really thought you would be a people person. You are very much a people person. But you are a people person in a way that I don't see uh, often in restaurants, whereas you know, there's the people person that kind of like breezily comes in, rubs elbows, says, hey, hey, hey. But you're really ingrained in everything and everyone, and you care about this community Um wholeheartedly like you know people care about music Mm -hmm. um you know how bandmates have to be able to play with each other to not you know be dissonant um let's talk about that culture because i think that's something that can get lost within expansion and franchising and having as many places how do you hold true to you know what you do in one place versus you know 10 plus well i think the the common thread is for each one of the businesses I've I've opened, including the clothing stores, is that there are places I want to go to, and I'm, you know, sort of assuming that my friends want to go to also. We like to say that we don't create them for everyone, but everyone is welcome. And I think that if you are trying to create something that is for everyone, it, you know, sometimes you're kind of watering something down. But um, I something that I'm really proud of is that we do have a really diverse clientele in all of the businesses. And since if you've been in Oddfellows, you know, it's from, you know, um, just whether it's uh, doctors at a nearby hospital to there's two colleges nearby, um, moms and their kids to all sorts of uh, musicians and artists uh, that are living and working in the neighborhood. So, I think walking into one of my businesses and seeing all sorts of people having a really good time is one of the most satisfying things. And you're right, I do. I really do like people. I'm the sort of person who walks in a room um, and just assumes I'm going to like most people. And I think, to me, that's a really nice way to move through life. Yes, and especially today, we need that kind of optimism oh my and caring. God. <laughs> <laughs> do we're, we we're, ever? We'll end this episode and then up, no, we'll crescendo. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Not only because I use it constantly, but because cabinet space is at a premium in New York City kitchens. My boyfriend and I were gifted our Le Creuset by his family last Christmas, and it was the first piece of enameled cookware we'd ever owned. I'd been fawning over the marine blue color, especially when I realized there were only a few left in stock. 
When we unwrapped the box, we were pleasantly surprised to see how big this thing was. I immediately started imagining what I could cook. Roast chicken, Texas-style chili, a leg of lamb, or my favorite, a huge batch of Marcella Hazan's bolognese. Head to lecrusade.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. Michael Harlan Turkel here today with Linda Dershang, who, you know, is Linda's an eponymous tavern? Like, did you name it after yourself? I didn't. <laughs> they, <laughs> uh, 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 Bruce Pavitt was the one who suggested it. Jonathan said, yeah, great. And I said, well, why not? Yeah. I mean, do you think you would have done, I mean, you've done very, very well with that. But if you had called it Dershangs. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have. <laughs> no one would be able to pronounce yeah. it. I mean, now you yeah. could do that. Now now people would yeah. not only find it quirky, but there is that, you know, uh, relatability to who you are and what you've done in Seattle. Right. So maybe, you know, I'm just saying, I'd go to Dershangs. I think, <laughs> I think early on people thought of it as sort of the sub-pop bar for the first maybe six months or something. I would have never related sub-pop to a giant buffalo head. <laughs> so let's talk about how it is and isn't a sub-pop bar from a decor and design standpoint. Because what did you want it to look like? Well, because I had... Um, I'd spent time in Colorado uh, in the mountains, going to mountain bars and, you know, ski towns. I definitely was trying to think of those the parts of a dive bar that really make it feel good. And when you're building something uh, new rather than taking over an old bar, how do you how do you design it in a way that it doesn't look like a theme bar, right? Um, how does it feel sort of authentic and which wasn't probably a word that I would have used then <laughs> in 1993 for when we were getting it ready to open. But we were just thinking of all the things that make dive bars cool, you know. So there are often, there's this, uh, they're, they're dark and cozy and there's booths and uh, um, low lighting and things can't be too matchy-matchy. They have to look a little bit found, right? It has to be worn. Like it worn. has to be, mm-hmm. you know, Reclaimed wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were even joking about this mm-hmm. during the break that, you know, you were very, very ahead of the curve of using reclaimed wood. Was it out of necessity, out of economics, or aesthetic? Aesthetic. It was, uh, we use salvage wood. We use some logs that we definitely had to find the, the right color, this sort of honey color varnish on them. So they looked a little aged. Old paintings, wagon wheel lights, uh, old signs. Um, I found an old cupboard that had come out of a a drugstore uh, in an area of town called Pioneer Square. And we used that as a cupboard instead of building out a cupboard for some liquor storage. And at the time, it just made sense to give the look that we were looking for. Somebody once said it's uh, that it was like I was designing stage sets more than in interiors and at first I wasn't sure that I liked that and over time I've grown to to think of it like that because really we're trying to set you're trying to set a mood you know in any place that you go that isn't really old and you're but you're trying to give it a feeling that maybe it's been around for a while um you 
you have to use some salvage materials to to give that feeling. And then there's the jukebox, mm-hmm. where Linda's was very much about the music when it began. Um, what is it about now? Well, the music is still important, and there's still a lot of musicians that work at Linda's and always have. It's always had a connection to to our local music scene. We try to keep the jukebox super eclectic. Um, Bruce Pavitt says that we oh, he would like us to always have the Ramones in the jukebox. <laughs> As a New Yorker, I like that, yes. Um, we, we're all good with that. We all love the Ramones. So, um, But yeah, they're definitely... Linda started out with a strong connection to music, but it's continued through the years. This is a funny question, but uh, having played in punk and emo bands, um, I was vegan and vegetarian during those times. Mm-hmm. What do musicians eat? <laughs> well, I suppose it depends on the musician, just like anyone else. Um, I think that when bands are out touring, that there are the people that are really interested in food and are looking for the best, whether it's taco or soup dumplings or, you know, I, burger. It could be it could be anything. I have a friend that said that he would go to different cities and try to find uh, those sorts of things. And, um, but you know, I'm sure that there are. There are plenty of musicians that are clean and healthy eaters, a few vegans like you were. But how do you create a place that's both neighborhoody as well as a destination? So say people are coming to Seattle rather than just it being for people that live in that general vicinity. What, how from a bar standpoint, food standpoint, design standpoint, do you draw people into all of your locations? Well, funny enough, these days <laughs> at uh, Oddfellows, which is our all-day, all-night neighborhood cafe, um, about to be 10 years old, um, it, it is the most Instagrammed restaurant in Washington State. When And the main area that's Instagrammed, it's Instagram moment, I think that sometimes it's known as, is uh, a, an old flag hanging on the wall. And Linda's, or I'm sorry, Oddfellows opened in December of 2008. So when I was looking for odds and ends to decorate it towards the end of the project, I came across an old flag. And um, at that time, what, I mean, what happened in November of 2008? Obama had just been elected. And when I saw that flag, I thought, you know what, it is, it's time to hang a flag. We were all so excited about Obama. And, but funny enough, it is the thing that is the most Instagram, but we, there was no Instagram. Then. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope that sentiment, especially today comes back and we have, you know, the same feeling that we did in 2008, not the, well, we'll see what yeah. happens later today. Yeah, right. Exactly. We um, have a little hope <laughs> we do, but back onto the food and bar front. Um, how do you change something that has been an institution for so long. I mean, it sounds like I'm asking a political question, but I'm referring to Queen City, which is an iconic Belltown space, and it's been in the community for over 100 years as a bar restaurant. How do you ingratiate yourself into taking over a space that people know? Well, that was an interesting one because I've I've never done that before. And, you know, previous to the Queen City Grill, which opened in 87... It was a place called Queen City Tavern, and I've heard from some people that are a little older than I am that have been in recently that um, 
it was quite a place. I mean, it was a super dive and a place that they would go, you know, late at night after they'd already been out partying. Um, and then it shut down in 1984. In 87, the Queen City Grill opened and it was way, way more upscale. And I think that's the one that a lot of people have memories of. I don't, however. I didn't go there all that frequently, maybe a dozen times. So interestingly, I didn't have this nostalgic feeling about it that sort of slanted my view of what I wanted it to be. I just, I I live in that neighborhood, and I knew that I wanted a neighborhood hangout, and I, there were others that I, that I had been talking to that live and work down there that felt the same way, and I knew that it had already been sold once after it had been the Queen City Grill, reopened by a new owner um, just for the last year or so, and I knew that they weren't doing really well. So I had hoped that if I was able to get it and take it over, that people would actually be very happy about that because they didn't want to see the place just you know completely shut down. So because the previous owners um, had made some changes that I think a lot of people weren't fond of, I've really got a pass. <laughs> um, they had painted it all white. So I, uh, I painted it, uh, I made it, it just sort of moody and dark and painted the ceiling a dark, a dark gray. And, you know, I, I think, and made it cozy again. And so people would walk in and say, oh, my God, this, is, this has that same sort of feeling. It didn't look exactly the same as the one that they remembered, but, it, but it, it has the feeling. I don't know if they could have told you what color the walls had been back in 1995 when they loved it. So in other words, if a place has you know, good bones, yep. you don't go in there and gut it. No, and that was part of my draw with this, is that it had really, really good bones. In fact, somebody told me that the bar itself it was, uh, was had been there since like the 1930s. Um, and so it was fun to have, to take over a place that did have really good bones and, and also a lot easier than building out a brand new place to just give a, a great place, a light kind of redo, hang a little taxidermy, a few portraits, <laughs> <laughs> some of the, you know, a few, a few rock photos and call it a day. Let's talk about one last thing, and it's about you being a female entrepreneur, because mm-hmm. I think it's such a strong part of your personality. Obviously, you know you are female, but uh, supporting other females in the industry as well. What was it like in 1994 opening up Linder's Tavern versus being a woman in the industry now? Oh my God, it's, it's it is so different. Uh, there were hardly any, if any, other bar owners in 1994. And the first few weeks that Linda's Tavern was open, the beer reps didn't want to sell me beer. So they would sell me one keg at a time, one case of, say, Budweiser, one case of something else. So I kept running out of beer. And I thought, after having a clothing store where they're like, are you sure you don't want two dozen of this when I would come to New York on a buying trip? I paying cash beer really doesn't go bad so why wouldn't they want to sell me two or three kegs of something why only one so for the first few weeks i would have to call every day and go please please send me another beer delivery i'm going to run out of beer i don't know exactly why they were doing that it ended after about three weeks but um i have heard since that it wasn't happening to men that owned bars 
Um, at that time, also, th- because there weren't other women that I knew in that industry, I mean, that were owners in, in that industry, you know, it was definitely hard. There were some men that were very, very helpful. But, you know, there were a lot of other men, especially because Linda's became very, very popular fast, that I felt that I needed to keep my cards very close when I was talking to them. And in the last probably 15 years, I have uh, been delighted to find so many women opening businesses and to have so many women friends in business. And, and many of my friends in business are at least 10 years younger and some are 20 and 25 years younger. And, you know, I learned a lot from them. I mean, I've got friends like Rachel Marshall from Rachel's Ginger Beer, um, Carrie Brunson from Frankie and Joe's, um, Angela Stoll, who was the CEO of Ethan Stoll Restaurants, who's now at Fair Start, um, uh, Linda Morton from Terra Plata, and, and Tamara Murphy. I mean, amazing women around and, and, and amazing women doing things in the community. But having their support and friendship is so important. I look back at what it was like and it's just it's just a world of difference. Well, you were a big part of making that world cozy and comfortable and accepting and diverse. So, you know, a lot of gratitude towards you. Um, if there were parting words to give to anybody trying to be a restaurant owner, bar owner in this day and age, man, woman, any race, gender, etc., what would it be? Words of advice. Um plan on spending a lot of time there and and honestly you better like people i actually <laughs> have had a few friends that have opened bars and realized they don't want to be around people all that all the time and also really want to be in your business and and with your employees um i do think it's interesting how often people really love the idea of opening a business but they don't really think about what it will be like to work in that business And that's different than, say, a chef opening his restaurant. He's used to working in the restaurant. It's more people coming from the outside thinking, wouldn't it be cool to have a bar? Wouldn't it be cool to have a restaurant? Because, you know, my grandma has a really great fried chicken recipe, right? And they really don't know the industry. But again, I didn't know the industry. And here I am. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you took that risk. And in the same way that, you know, Seattle isn't all rain and fog, as most people think. There, there are certainly rays of sunshine. Thank you again for being on The Food Scene. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to La Crusade for sponsoring Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. And one little last announcement. Tickets are now on sale for our Winter in the Garden Uh, holiday party and tasting. This is Monday, December 3rd in the Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Starts at 6 p.m. for VIPs, 7 for general admittance. Whole bunch more information at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Check it out. I'm going to be making really, really really good grilled cheeses, caviar. Uh, Yeah, stop by my station for sure. But thank you again to Le Crusade, Linda for being on the show, and everyone involved here at Heritage Radio. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.